tonight in our Through the Bible, book by book, we've come to the little prophecy of Joel. And I wonder how many have read Joel. Would you indicate by raising your hand if you've read Joel this week? Now, Joel is only three chapters long. And we all should have read it. I'd like to see some of these Sunday nights a 100% representation on this matter of reading through these Old Testament books and the New Testament books when we come to them. There's nothing like the reading of the Word of God, and we ought to give ourselves to it, as the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and encouraged him to do. Last week we looked at at the book of Hosea, the prophecy of Hosea, and we saw that Hosea is a revelation of the heart of God. Well, if Hosea reveals the heart of God, then Joel is a revelation of the hand of God. The hand that moves the controls of destiny. The hand behind the movements of history. And that's what you we see revealed here in this prophecy of Joel. The way God moves in human history. For centuries, men have been looking for the principle upon which all the events of of human events turns. And ever since the dawn of history, there have been many guesses as to what that controlling principle is. Way back in the time of the great Greek thinkers, the Greeks came up with the idea that history moves in cycles. And it's interesting that Arnold Toynbee, uh, the current uh, historian, leading historian of our day, agrees with that, that history moves in cycles. Aristotle, for instance, said that that uh, uh, history follows this kind of a course. He says there is, first of all, the rise of a tyrant, of a man of power, a man of iron, who seizes control of a nation or a group of people. And uh, he rules until uh, his dynasty passes. It may be himself or his son or his sons. And then control gradually uh, passes to a ruling family of aristocracy. Uh, certain leaders of be, uh, share this power. And gradually their power deteriorates until it is passed on down to the people. And this is what he called then a democracy, which we're familiar with. But a democracy deteriorates also and gradually comes to the place where all power breaks down and anarchy ensues. And out of the anarchy, a tyrant appears who seizes control again, and so the cycle of history goes. Now, there's a lot of, uh, of truth in that theory. Other men through the centuries have guessed at the controlling principle of life. Thomas Jefferson thought it was political. And when he wrote the Declaration of, the In- of Independence, he incorporated that idea in the prologue. Remember how it opens? Uh, that uh, w- uh, we... Uh, uh, human governments uh, recognize that there are certain inalienable rights that are granted to men, and to preserve these rights, governments are instituted among men. And he felt it was the political urge that was behind the forces that shape human history and form the nations of earth. Uh, back in the last century, Karl Marx dipped his pen in the in the acid of his own embittered spirit and wrote his great work that has so influenced our modern times. And his idea was that the controlling force of history was economic, that it's the 
the need to meet the material demands of life that shapes the course of history. And he called it dialectical materialism. That is, materialism, uh, which is the principle of materialism, arrived at through debate, through discussion of these issues. And this has seized the minds of men today and all over the earth. There are thousands, millions, who feel that economics is the controlling principle of life. And uh, others have said it's sociological. H.G. Wells, for instance, was one of a great number of thinkers who said, no, the controlling principle is evolution. And evolutionary concepts shape the course of human destiny. And you get much of that in our in schools today, that behind all the events of human history recorded in our daily newspapers and by historians, there is an evolutionary principle always trending higher and higher, making life better and better. But the Bible says all these are wrong. The Bible says that behind all the course of human history is God, that the controlling hinge of history is spiritual, that God's spirit is at work among men. And you can't understand human events if you don't recognize that. One of the most, one of the most meaningful statements ever uh, written in the scriptures, I feel, and one of the most terrifying things that can be ever said in the hearing of man was said at the time of the flood when God said to Noah, my spirit shall not always strive with men. And whenever that sentence is uttered, it means that judgment is at hand. For the striving of God's spirit is that patient enduring of God that permits human life to go on by restraining evil and to try to win men to himself by holding back the destructive forces in human events. But at last, God's patience reaches an end. And there come times, repeated times in human history, when either to an individual or to a nation, God says, my spirit shall not always strive with men. And when he removes his spirit and the controlling forces of life, the whole thing collapses. And that's when catastrophe occurs and judgment strikes. Now, that's the message of the book of Joel, essentially. This young man, of whom not much is known, was a prophet to the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. And he was probably a contemporary with Isaiah and, uh, uh, and Hosea and Amos and these other prophecies that we've looked at. We don't know much about Joel except that he prophesied in this southern kingdom, but he was one of the most far-sighted men that has ever written, even in the pages of the word of God. Joel saw clear to the end of human history, far past our own day, clear to the final stages of God's dealing with human events. And he links it all to a great dramatic occurrence in his own day. The book opens on that note with his call to the people of his day to consider a tremendous thing that had happened in that land. He says, hear this, you aged men. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Whenever I, I read that, it always reminds me of my days in the Navy. Whenever the Navy intended to make an important announcement, it always began with, Now hear this! And that's the way Joel begins. Hear this. 
Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children another generation. There's going to be an event of such transcending importance that people will be talking about it for years and years to come. And what is Joel talking about? Well, he's talking about the great day of the Lord. Back in World War II, you who were with us at that time, remember how we talked about the coming of D-Day and then VJ Day. And we were looking forward to the end of the war, calling it the day. Well, God has a day, what he calls the day of the Lord. And Joel was given to describe the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is not just one event in human history. As we read, we'll find in this prophecy, the day of the Lord is any event in which God moves in judgment, any time. But it's culminating and building up in cycles to a great and terrible day of the Lord, of which Joel speaks in chapter 2 and chapter 3. The great and terrible day of the Lord is that period of time that the Lord Jesus Christ described as a time of trouble when there would be such tribulation such as never has been since the creation of the world, no, nor ever will be. And it was given to the prophet Joel to describe, to see that across the intervening centuries of time, to describe it and to illustrate it by events that were taking place in his own day. Now, the event that was happening in his day was an invasion of locusts. I wonder if you've ever, any of you, ever have seen an invasion of locusts. I was in Minnesota years and years ago when there came a an invasion of grasshoppers, which are very similar insects to locusts. And I can remember yet how the sky was literally darkened by a great cloud of these insects that came flying in, and you could hear them descending into the standing grain of the fields like hail upon the ground. And there was a continual rustling of, of, of the noise of their wings as you walked about the field. And within moments after they lit upon a field, every blade of grass, every bit of vegetation was gone. And they left the fields as though they had been plowed behind them. That's what had happened in Israel. A locust horde had descended upon the land and devoured every living thing in the land. So that the crops were all ruined. And there was nothing left for the people to eat. And therefore a famine followed it. And uh, Joel is calling their attention to this. I doubt if they hardly needed that under those conditions because everyone was aware of it. But what they didn't see was where it came from. He says to them, God is behind this. His call to them as he described this in very uh, in very uh, descriptive terms, very uh, definitive terms, he, he reminds them of how terrible this is and how the fields are laid waste and the ground mourns and all the grain is destroyed. And then in verse 14, he says, Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry to the Lord, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. And as destruction from the Almighty it comes. In other words, God's behind this, he says. This just hasn't happened. 
This isn't just one of those freaks of nature. This is an obedience to the command of God working through the natural laws that govern human life. And there's a lesson for us in this. Don't fail to heed the lesson, this prophet said. For if you learn the lesson now through this rather minor league occurring of the day of the Lord, you will save yourself the awful heartache that will come from failing to learn the lesson that must be met at last by the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he's simply pointing out that God's hand in allowing catastrophes like this to occur is to make people aware of the spiritual background of life. That, that life is just not merely trying to eat and drink and find money to buy food to eat and drink and get strength to find money to buy food and so on. But behind all the commonplace things of life is the, is the being of God and the controlling hand of the Spirit of God and the need of man to be, wake up to the fact that God is talking to him and God has something to say to him. God wants to bless him, but man won't listen. That's the problem. And God shakes him up with something that makes him listen. Has that ever happened to you? God ever done anything to you that just made you suddenly aware as you were going along just eating your Wheaties and doing okay? And some terrible thing happened and you realized that things weren't as good as they, you thought they were. And you began to listen. And you realized there was something that needed to be said. And this is what God is doing. Now in chapter 2, you discover that the prophet leaps over a great span of time to the end days. And he uses this invasion of the locusts as a picture of an invasion of a great army that's going to come into the land of Israel in the last days. And we only can detect this span of time as you compare the whole stream of prophecy together. Anyone taking this book would never notice any difference here except that the prophet is now describing the invasion of an army of men instead of an army of insects. But he goes on to describe this. And again he calls it the day of the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It's near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people, their like has never been from of old, nor will be again after them through the years of all generation. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That again is the language that our, that the Lord Jesus used. This will be a time of trouble, he says, such as never has been since the creation of the world, no, nor ever shall be. And uh, then the prophet uh, describes how the, the land is a scorched earth behind them as this great army advances, describes the appearance of them as they run like horses and cover the army, a powerful army drawn up for battle, and how fear grips the hearts of the people as they see this invading host come up upon them. And uh, they, they're, they're irresistible. Nothing can stop them in their march. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. And then we come to a very significant passage in verse 11 and verse uh, 10 of chapter 2. The prophet says, The sun and the moon are darkened, 
and the stars withdraw their shining. Now, anyone who spends time with the prophetic passages of Scripture soon learns to look for what are, what are sort of uh, interpretational landmarks. Certain repeated uh, prophetic symbols that occur again and again throughout various books of prophecy that give you a, uh, a mark of identification so that you know where you are. And this is one of them. This darkening of the sun and the moon and the stars falling from their places. You'll remember that this is also part of Jesus' great discourse on the Mount of Olives. He too refers to this time when the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall turn to blood and the stars shall fall from the heavens. It appears also in the book of Daniel. It appears in Isaiah. It appears in the book of Revelation. It appears in several places all through scripture. And this always marks the same event in human event, in human history. It's an interpretational landmark. And when you see that referred to, you know you're dealing with the last days before what is called the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, this then becomes a, a description or is seen to be a description of the invasion of Israel that is also foretold and described by the prophet Ezekiel in the 38th and 39th chapters, when a great northern army comes into the land, invading it from the north, and sweeping down across the land, destroys everything in the land, and captures the city of Jerusalem. But uh, God's promise is that this northern army will be dealt with in that land. Isaiah says so, Ezekiel says so, Daniel says so. And now Joel also adds his voice to the chorus of prophets. And in verse 12, God interjects this word that gives the purpose behind this great invasion. He says, yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and repents of evil, who knows whether he will not turn and repent and leave a blessing behind him. After all, God does not delight in judgment. That isn't what he's after. He never wants to judge anyone. What he's after is a heart that will listen to him and heed him and open the door for the blessings God wants to pour in. And in order to get that person or nation to stop and listen and turn, God will bring all kinds of harsh things into their pathway. But all he's after is that repentant heart. Rend your hearts and not your garments, says the apostle. You see, it's so easy when we realize that God is dealing with us to think, well, at least if I don't give in inwardly, at least I can outwardly. Most of us are like that, aren't we? We're so like the little boy whose mother said to him, now sit down. And he wouldn't sit down. And she said again, sit down. And he said, I won't. And she went over and grabbed him by the shoulders and sat him down in the chair. And he looked up at her defiantly and said, I may be sitting down outside, but I'm standing up inside. (laughs) Do you ever do that? That's rending your your garments, but not your heart. 
God says, don't do the outside. I'm not interested in that. Don't bother with hypocritical attitudes and actions. They don't impress me in the least. I want to see the heart rent. That's the thing. God uh, is is utterly unimpressed by our hypocrisies. We may fool others. We don't fool him. We can pretend even to ourselves, but unless our heart is really rent before him, the rending of the garments, the tearing of the garments means nothing. Rend your heart and not your garment. And then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people, the prophet says, And at last God says in verse 20, I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his front toward the eastern sea, that's the Dead Sea, and his rear toward the western sea, the Sea of the Mediterranean. And the stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he's done great things. You can compare that with the prophecy of Ezekiel 38 and 39. The destruction of the invasion, invading armies on the mountains of Israel in the wilderness of Judea. The very, uh, the very same event. Now, something happens that is very frequent in, in prophecy. In verse 21 of chapter 3, the prophet returns after leaping over this great span of years to the end days. He comes back again to the events of his, of the present hour. The, locust plague in the land. And he says to the people, now, just as God in that great day is going to is going to deliver his people and drive away the northern army, so today, in this present catastrophe that we're in, he's going to restore the land from its barren condition and its desolation now. And he says, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord's done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field. The pastures of the wilderness are green. And in beautiful language, he goes on to to describe the restoration of the land. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vat shall overflow with wine and oil. And God's promise is, I will restore to you the years which the swarming locust has eaten. I'll never forget the agony in the eyes of a boy about 21 years of age, a number of years ago, who said to me, who looked at, at me and said, you know, I've become a Christian, and it's wonderful. But when I think back of what, God, what I've missed and the years of my life that I've wasted, he said, my heart just grows sick at the thought of it. Oh, if I'd only had the good sense to have come to know the Lord before I did all those terrible things. And I had the joy of looking at him and saying to him, Son, God says, I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. That's the promise of God. He'll make up for the barrenness of our life when we turn back to him. I'll restore to you the years which the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, and my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty. And be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God. And so it happened in Israel. But now comes uh, another sudden leap ahead. This is oftentimes the case in these prophecies. And in verse 28, we come to the great passage that the Apostle Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost. 
You remember how dramatically that was when suddenly there was with the Christians this rushing mighty wind as they gathered in the courts of the temple and tongues of fire broke out on every head and men began to speak in strange tongues and those gathering around heard them and they gathered around them a great multitude of people and watched these people and listened to them praising God in these various languages and the people who had come in from all parts of the earth said to themselves, what is this? Here are these simple Galilean fishermen by their dress talking to us in our own tongue and praising God in these wonderful things. And they said, what is this? Why, these men must be drunk. I never saw anyone act like this before. And at that moment, Peter stood up and led of the Spirit of God and said to them, men and brethren, these are not drunk, as you suppose, seeing it's but the ninth hour of the day. It's too early to get drunk. But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And then he quoted this passage. It shall come to pass afterward, that is, after God has restored the land of Israel and uh, given back the years which the locust has eaten, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even upon the men servants and maid servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will give portents in the heavens and on the earth blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. And that's where Peter cl closed his quotation. Now, what, what was this? Well, here's the prophet Joel. He has already seen on beyond this to the time of the invasion of Israel. And now he sees something different. Faintly, in mystery, somewhat undefined yet to his vision, he says there's going to be a great time in between, an indeterminate period, when God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. When there will be no distinctions made between classes or ranks of people. When even servants, men servants and maid servants, shall speak as the voice of God, shall prophesy, shall be prophets, and speak out the word of God. And it will come about as God pours out his spirit upon all kinds of men everywhere. Now, we don't have to remain in doubt as to what he was talking about. We know what that day is. It's the day of the spirit in which we live. The day which began on Pentecost, at Pentecost, when God first poured out his spirit in this way. And that spirit is being poured out throughout this whole age. And Peter, you see, also quotes Joel, who gives the sign of the end of that age. The heavens shall turn to blood, and the sun shall turn to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord shall come. That's the end of the age. We have the sign of the beginning and the sign of the end. And no man knows how long it will last. But in that time, God pours out his spirit without distinction, among men, the age of the spirit in which we live. And then in chapter 3, 
the prophet returns to that time of the end, and he says now, beyond that, more certainly, because other prophets had spoken on this line, all he sees of the intervening period is just the great mark of the Spirit's presence. But now he says, beyond that, God says, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, and I'm going to gather all the nations together down into the field, into the valley of judgment, and there I'm going to judge them. Remember Jesus said, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory with all his angels, then all the nations shall be gathered before him, and then shall the Son of Man sit in judgment upon them, and shall say to the righteous, to the as a man divides the sheep from the goats, he says, he will say to the righteous, come and enter into the inheritance of my Father, and to the unrighteous, depart from me. This is the valley of judgment that follows. And uh, in preparation for this comes the great word of God to the nations of the world. It's an amazing word, a startling word. In verse 9, proclaim this among the nations. Prepare war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Did you know the Bible said that? How many times have you heard it quoted the other way? Beat your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks. Does it say that? Yes, it does. In the third chapter of Micah. But in Joel, it says the opposite. And Joel's prophecy comes first. That is, Joel's prediction, the fulfillment of it, comes first. This is what God is saying to the nations today. That's why the nations are at war. And they're going to remain at war in one way or another until the time when God says, beat your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks. Just as Jesus said, there shall be wars and rumors of wars. Nations shall rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And so it shall go be until the end. This is what Joel says. Then we have another verse that's often quoted, verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And then that at mark again, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. This is the great and terrible day of the Lord that is to come, and the mark of it. What does this mean, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision? I don't know how many evangelistic messages I've heard on this, uh, giving the picture that many thousands are waiting, are in the moment of decision. Uh, hanging between the choice of heaven and hell. And perhaps it's justifiable to use it that way. But that isn't what this verse means. It isn't man dis- man's decision that is talked about here. It's God's. God will enter the valley of decision. And the multitudes of the nations will be gathered before him. All the world is there on this judgment day. And the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Now that's the day of the Lord. The final day of God's judgment of the living nations of earth. 
at the return of Jesus Christ. And the result will be, as the prophet describes it, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwell in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy. After all, that's what God's always after, isn't it? And when God enters into judgment with you, that's what he's after. He's waiting for you to realize that he is God, not you. You don't have the right to run your own life. You don't have the right to take your life and do with it as you please. He has that right. God is God. And if things begin to go wrong with you, it's God's way of saying to you, look, you're not your own boss. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. I am God. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And the final scene is one of beauty. In that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Water is always a picture of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, there shall come rivers of living water. He that believeth on me, as the Spirit has said, out of his innermost being shall flow rivers, rivers of blessing, rivers of living water to satisfy the thirsty soul of man. You see, the future is in God's hands. It isn't in the hands of men. If it were, we'd make a mess of it. It isn't in the hands of the devil. If it were, we would be on our way to destruction, every one without faith. It isn't some blind principle of historical determinism that's guiding the future. If it were, there'd be no meaning to life. But the future is in the hands of one who is preparing something that eye has never seen and ear has never heard. Neither has it ever entered into the heart of man the wonderful things God is preparing for those who love him. I believe that. And I believe that every moment that God deals with us in judgment is calling our attention and waking us up to that great prevailing truth that runs through every life. And God is simply in grace saying to us by these difficult things, look now. Wait, listen, stop, look, and listen, and give attention that you might be ready for the great things yet to come. There's truth, you know, in some of the words of the poets from time to time. I always love those words of Robert Browning's, but I say them again with a new meaning when I read the words of Scripture. Grow old along with me, the best is yet to be the last of life for which the first was made. Shall we bow in prayer? Our Father, thank you for this picture of life and for thy hand invisibly guiding the affairs of men, the destiny of nations and of individuals. Grant to us, young and old alike, that we may have the wisdom to listen to these great words and to heed them and to turn from going our own way, and to yield our hand and heart and life into the hand of one who loves us and who has given himself for us 
that he might prepare us for a future so so un, so unbelievable wonderful unbelievably wonderful it takes our breath away we ask in christ's name